0: Happy 4th of July, and welcome to Full Core Press, I'm Liam Griffin. Jay, oh boy, oh boy, it doesn't look good, too good at all for you Aggies right now, does it? No, it does not, Liam, no it does not. I'm a little bit
1: bummed out, but I'm sure we'll have a great season. Our recruiting might take a hit, but that's for the, fu- for the future. I think we're set for the season.
0: Hey, I mean, you know... As much as I am reading against UT, it doesn't look like you're going to be better than them this year. Alright, boys and girls, back on the show today is a man heading up to College Station soon, Mr. Jay West. (laughs) On today's show, we will cover the top 10 active catchers and all-time small forwards. We'll start with the catchers right now. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. We begin today with the absolute bombshell news from this week that Cam Newton will be joining my New England Patriots on a one-year deal. Newton was hurt all last year, but is still a former MVP winner. And imagine, just imagine, putting Bill Belichick, the best coach in football, with a dual-threat QB such as Cam Newton. Jay, where does this put the Pats in the AFC hierarchy after all that's happened this offseason? Well Liam, it puts them it puts them right back at the top of their division. Let me just say that. They're gonna be in play for a wild
1: card at least, but I think they're in play to win their division for what? The fifth straight time? What is how long? How many times have they won their
0: division? Oh let me count, let me count. They have won their division eleven straight times and seventeen wow. times in the past nineteen years.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but they still got a incredibly good defense. They have a very good defense. So, Tom Brady wasn't great last year. I know not all of it was his fault. The receiving core wasn't great, but I'm sure Cam Newton can be just as good as Tom Brady was, and not better. And that team won their division. So I think this, even with an improved Josh Allen, hopefully, and a better Bills team, I still think this team is going to be a top of their division. How about you, Liam?
0: I honestly, it doesn't change their position at all from last year because. The top dogs in the AFC were undisputably Kansas City and Baltimore, right? And New England was number three for most of the season until they were upset by Tennessee. I think this puts them back over Tennessee. And keep in mind that in the past, Bill Belichick has been able to convert no-name wide receivers like Chris Hogan into receivers who are getting contracts with $10 million a year on them, right? So who's to say a guy like... And Keel Harry, who was, who was extremely mediocre last year, can't become one of those guys. With Cam Newton as the quarterback, I am very optimistic. I was, as you know, Jay, I was down and pouting about them. I thought they were destined for 6-10, and 10, but not anymore, man. I think they're... You,
1: gotta, you have to remember also, Cam Newton's used to throwing... The throwing to receivers also. He's been throwing to Christian McCaffrey for the past two or three years. Yeah, I mean... fit perfectly into that offense.
0: Yeah, I mean, because part of the Patriots' offense, too, is a lot of throws to James White, and I can't remember Cam Newton ever playing with an elite receiver. So That's correct, yeah. I mean, other than McCaffrey and the Patriots, I mean, Cam Newton's going to have Edelman. He's going to have James White. He's a great pass-catching running back. He's going to have Sonny Michel, a solid running back. I don't like the tight end situation still. I don't know if you saw this. Him and Muhammad Sanu, one of the receivers the Pats picked up at the deadline last year, were working out together this week in Cali. So I am, I'm optimistic, Jay. I know you don't like hearing that, but I am optimistic. And just
1: some news I heard earlier today is that
0: David Njoku is looking for a new home. And oh yeah, a yeah. guy. I would. He's a talented guy. Yeah, I, I would. I would, see the Patriots I would love to see the Patriots trade for Njoku. because. Ben Watson's an old man at this point, and Malik Haas and Ryan Izzo. I don't see a Gronk in them. I'm being fully honest with you. All right, enough Cam Newton. Let's get into our catchers, Jay. Who's your number ten? I'm gonna go with
1: Roberto Perez of the Cleveland Indians.
0: Kay. He had a career. He had a pretty pretty
1: well he had a career year last year. 24 home runs, which is great for a catcher. He walked 45 times. His on base percentage was 321, and he. Was a good, He was a serviceable defender back there, so I want to put him as number 10 because of, of his well-roundedness offensively and defensively. How about you,
0: Liam? Uh, my number 10 is a guy who was splitting duties last year with another very talented catcher who did not make this list, but I think this guy is far and away the better of the bunch. I mean, looking at his stats, 264, 17 homers, 63 RBIs, over 85 games. You play Kurt Suzuki... The 130, 140 games a normal number one catcher would get—that's 30 home run power right there. And I know he's 36 years old, but he is—he's gotten better with age. In all honesty, ever since he left Minnesota in 2016, after two seasons in Atlanta, this past season in DC with the Nats, and you cannot—you cannot overstate the importance uh, of his home run in Game Two of the World Series off Verlander that. ignited the rally that put the game away. And, you know, he's going to... The loss of Rendon has not been talked about enough for the Nationals, if you ask me. But if they're going to be competing again, Kurt Suzuki is going to be a big part of it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I didn't have Suzuki in my top ten. That was a nice pick, Liam. For my number nine pick, I'm going to have to go
0: with one of your guys, Christian Vasquez. Yeah!
1: I mean, I don't know how this guy gets overlooked. A great season last year, twenty-three home runs, seventy-two RBIs, hit two seventy-six. That's just incredible offensive Stasberg catcher, and something catchers are one of the most important jobs of catchers to frame pitches. And he's one of the best at that. So
0: I got to put him as number nine, and definitely one of the most underrated catchers in the game. All right, I'll talk more. I'll talk more about Vasquez in a little bit. My number nine is. Uh... And also one of the more underrated catchers in the game. He doesn't have the uh, pop that a lot of the best catchers in the game today do, but he he's able to rack up hit after hit after hit for his teams, and that is Wilson Ramos of the New York Mets, who hit who over the past four years, in three of the past four years, he has hit 280 or higher. The one year he didn't, he hit 260 because he was dealing with injuries that year. But the guy's I'm going to say this right now, batting average, the importance of it has gone down drastically for some reason in the media over the past years, and I can't understand why, because thing, Because high average means you get on base all the time, right? I don't understand why people are so obsessed with home runs these days, they, they forget how vital a simple single can be. And Wilson Ramos, he racks up hit after hit after hit, and I just felt like he was... Disrespectful not to include him on this list.
1: Yeah, I got Christian, I got Wilson Ramos on my list also, but my next pick for number eight is gonna have to go to um, James McCann. It's just, okay. He's always been he's been decent for the past couple years, but this year he really had a great year. Eighteen home runs, sixty RBIs. He might seem kind of equal with Christian Fox. Christian Vasquez hit two seventy three on the year. But he's also just a team leader, a guy people, a person people love around the clubhouse, and he also is a great defensive catcher. So that's why I got him at number
0: eight. All what right, you? what's your number eight? Now? I got Vasquez at number eight, and let me just say this: it cannot be overstated enough that Vasquez honestly came out of nowhere last year because entering this entering the 2019 season, he had had. He had hit ten home runs in his career, and all of a sudden, the man hits. The man has ten home runs by mid June. I mean, this came out of nowhere. I knew that he had the potential to hit for average as twenty seventeen shows, but it was just so. I know the Red Sox didn't exactly have a great year last year, but seeing Vasquez emerge as a real offensive force was a lot of fun to see. And quite frankly, he's a big part of this offense. The one thing, or the one thing that's downgrading him a little bit for me, personally, because I'm a Sox fan, is his inability to work well with Chris Sale, the ace of our staff. Unfortunately, we won't get to see that this year, because Sale is on the shelf due to Tommy John, but a couple years down the line, once Sale is healthy again, if if him and Vasquez can work well together, Sale could finally pick up the Cy Young that has eluded him throughout his career. Yeah, I agree.
1: So, for my number seven, I'm going to have to go with the guy who actually didn't play last season due to Tommy John surgery. Mike Chris will not play this season. But he, in the past, he's been a staple on the Kansas City Royals lineup for the past five to ten years. It's Salvador Perez. I think next year he'll come back, do what he's always done. He's been a gold glove catcher. He's hit 20-plus home runs, and he'll just be a, four, a good 4-5-6 hitter for the Royals. And I think he's going to be back to the same that he was doing before his Tommy John surgery.
0: Yeah, I'll touch more on Perez later. All right, my number 7 is a guy who, like Perez, did not, or similarly to Perez, didn't get much action last year. But in his 54 games played... He showed massive power potential for a lineup that doesn't really need it. So, just the thought of Will Smith going into the Dodgers lineup by catcher is terrifying because they've already got Bellinger, they've already got Turner, they've already got Muncy, they've already got Seager, they've already got Chris Taylor. They added Mookie Betts, and now you're adding a guy who, in his limited action last year, showed 30-40 to home run power. That is a scary, scary thing, Jay West. It is very scary, and honestly, I don't see it. Out. If Will Smith can hit like he did in his fifty-four games last year, the the rest of the league doesn't stand a chance. I don't think. I don't think any team has anywhere near the level of talent that currently lives in Los Angeles, California, on the Dodgers. I don't. That brings me
1: to my number six, which is also Will Smith, who we didn't get to see his defensive value because he only played 54 games. But in the minors, he was he graded out as one of the best defensive catchers in the minors. So we're talking about a pretty good defensive catcher here. And then he had 15 home runs in 54 games. That's it. It only took him 54 games. That's a ton of power. That's a ton of pop. So you're right. I don't – this Dodgers lineup scared me too. Mookie Betts, this guy, Bellinger, this is going to be knocking home runs all over the place, basically. So, this kid, it's going to be special one day. He already is special at age
0: 25. So and Jay, let me, say that, let me say this, too. If the Dodgers don't win the World Series this year, especially this year, when the season's only going to be 60 games, something's wrong yeah. with... I love Dave Roberts, but he. it will show that he's not a good manager. And my number six guy you talked about earlier, Salvador Perez, who before his Tommy John surgery was about as stable a presence in the Kansas City lineup as ever, and what's surprising to me is that he's, and I just learned this, he's only 30, I feel like he's been around for a long, long time, the fact that he still has, you know, two, three years left of peak performance is really what Kansas City needs, because let's be honest, they're uh, Bottom feeders right now, and they're not gonna. And they're gonna be bottom feeders for a while unless they have veteran leadership, such as that of Salvador Perez.
1: I like that. For, not, for my number five, I'm going with the uh, kind of surprise. He was surprised last season. Only played 93 games, but my God, he hit 31 home runs in those 93 games. That's one home run every three games, basically. That's Mitch Garver of the Minnesota Twins. I mean, if he plays some more games this year, I want to see him over a full season, see if he can replicate the success. But he had 273. He had a 365 on-base percentage. He just had an incredible year. And offensively, at least. And he, if he can continue with success, he had in 93 games, he will, he will be the best offensive catcher in the league. What's your number five, Liam?
0: Yeah, you know, I think... I'll talk about Longar earlier. I think part of the reason why he didn't get... No, playing time was because Jason Castro, very good defensive catcher, and started to hit some home runs last year. I mean, that's just one of my theories. He is a... But he's in L.A. now, so he will get full-time, but I'll touch more on Garver later. My number five is a guy who, like Garver but not Garver, has a lot of power in his bat, but over the past two seasons has been a strikeout king and not a good... Strikeout King, and that's Gary Sanchez of the New York Yankees. The power's all there. Let's make that perfectly clear. The power's all there. But in twenty eighteen, over eighty-nine games, he hit one eighty-six. And then last year, over 106 games, 232. That's no good, J West. That is no good is at that, all. Yes. If Gary Sanchez is going to become the number one catcher in the league, like all the Yankees fans say he is or is going to be. That average has to go up, and do I think it's possible? Who knows? After the, because the Yankees don't seem to want to open that envelope.
1: Yeah, that brings me up to my number four, which is a Gary Sanchez. And you're right, Liam. I might have credited him a little bit too high based on what you're saying, but the power is—it's really hard to pass up the 34 home runs, which led the which led catchers last year. It's a great stat. But the strikeouts, the average, and also defensively,
0: he's just not oh, there. Oh, he's terrible defensively. Other... He's terrible defensively. I mean,
1: I remember watching the Astros-Yankees playoff series last year, and it was pass ball after pass ball, it seemed like. And to be fair, the Yankees have some nasty pitchers, but you got to be able to catch the ball at least, or block it and stuff like that. So I put him at number four. You could make an argument that he could be lower on the list or higher. Um...
0: But that's my number f- but he's purely at number four because of his power. Yeah, my number so. four is Mitch Garver, and you know not Castro's out of Minnesota. It's all his. So he has no excuse to not put up forty home runs the next time a full season is played, hopefully twenty twenty one. I think you already said as much as there is to say about him, I mean first on the scene last year, still only twenty nine years old. That twins offense it's gonna be really good with Donaldson is joining them.
1: Yeah, for sure. My number three, my number three catcher, I gotta go with Wilson Contreras, who was a little bit injured last year, bitten by the injury bug, only played 105 games, but still hit 24 home runs, which is career high for him, which I think is just just a preface of what's to come. I mean, he's good defensively, he's serviceable, but offensively, he's slashed 272, 355 on base percentage, and again, 24 home runs, so,
0: and only 105 games, so, this guy's just an all-around stud. Yeah, I mean... You
1: can put him at number three, he's that good at any.
0: He's had a huge bounce-back year in 2019 after a very disappointing 2018. I mean, Contreras, he's also at number three, by the way, like you said... Very, very good defensively, a stud offensively. He's been one ever since he was called up during the Cubs championship run four years ago. And, you know, they've still got the talent up there, but it hasn't shown. And Contreras, there's going to be a resurgence in the contreras Bryant rizzo bias era. Well, part of it's the pitching, but Contreras' offensive power is going to be a big part of that. And, you know... It's not easy to steal a base with Wilson Contreras behind the plate at all. Very good at that. But you know what is easy? Podcasting with Anchor. Alright, and with that, we move on to our top two. Jay, I have a feeling they're going to be somewhat similar, but I may be wrong. Who's your number two? I think we'll be similar. I got Yasmani Grandal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, yeah. reason
1: I got him there is, I look at this catcher's walk-to-strikeout ratio is pretty lopsided with not many walks and a ton of strikeouts because they're usually swinging for the fences. But, <laughs> yes, Monte Grandel, 109, 109 walks to 139 strikeouts. That is
0: elite. Yeah, and the
1: on-base percentage is, is the, just And then in
0: 2018, 72 walks to 124 strikeouts. I mean, after, an, I mean, the dude's hit four straight home... Four straight seasons of at least 20 home runs, and the White Sox got a steal with him. I don't understand why the Brewers made more of an effort to keep him. Yeah, I agree. And then, I have a feeling both of our number ones are going to be the stud from Philadelphia, JT Real Muto. Yep, some say
1: the Philadelphia Phillies overpaid to get him. They traded away the top pitching prospect Sixto Sanchez in order to get him, but I think he was worth every penny. And I'm not big on pitching prospects that throw 98, 99 miles per hour because I feel like they can be a little unstable. Tommy John surgery
0: and hey, control hey, issues stuff warn- like that. Just a warning. You may be talking about my man Tanner Witt, but that is it. Dis- I think
1: ta- if Tanner Witt goes to college, I think the college route is a
0: good route. Yeah, it's a great, it's the right route for him. But that's a discussion yeah. for another time. I mean, Real Muto, the Phillies made a great trade picking him up. It's it boggles my mind how the Phillies were a mediocre team last year. Maybe Joe Girardi's going to help them out unless he gets in trouble for the sign-stealing. And, you know, Real is a huge, huge part of that offense. Yep, he really is. And with that, time for the history lesson, boys and girls. Where we honor great achievements of the past in the coming week. I feel like I've said this guy's name at least a 100 times on the show because he has a ton of milestones. Forty years ago today, on the 4th of July, Nolan Ryan recorded the 3,000th strikeout of his career. The Ryan Express went out to finish his career with 5,714 strikeouts, and no other pitcher has come close to that total.
1: Alright, double feature for July 6th. 18 years ago, Monday, Serena Williams beat her sister Venus to win her first of many Wimbledon singles titles. And 17 years ago, Monday, Roger Federer won his first Grand Slam singles title. Serena has the second most Grand Slam titles among women at 23, and Federer has the most among men at 20.
0: 20 years ago, Wednesday, July 8th, Serena's sister, Venus Williams, won her first Grand Slam singles title at Wimbledon. She hasn't had nearly as illustrious a career as her sister, but it hasn't been too shabby either, as she has seven singles titles and 16 doubles titles at Grand Slams. And you know, Jay, her show with Rob Gronkowski and Keegan-Michael Key, Game On, when I... Watched it for the first time because I was bored and looking for something to watch during quarantine. I was a little skeptical, but it is funny. I'd recommend it if you haven't seen it. <laughs> I have not. i got to check it out. Alright, 28 years
1: ago, t- on Friday, July 10th, the U.S. Major Soccer League folded after 14 seasons. Unlike most other countries, the U.S. Professional Soccer League, the MLS, isn't all too popular in America for many different reasons. I
0: think part of that is because... Basketball, baseball, and football are simply more popular here, but the U.S. You know, we the men just aren't good at soccer. The women are amazing at soccer, but the men just aren't good, and that's just the truth I of the matter.
1: Part of that is we have so many cho- sports to choose from. While yeah, while Europe.
0: most of the world's soccer is it, we got baseball, basketball, football. Hockey. Most our best
1: athletes are going to. Some other sports. Yeah,
0: and most of our our best athletes go play in the NFL or the NBA. And with that, on to our discussion about the top ten all-time small forwards. Jay, I know you know I've got some opinions on this, so get us started. All right, at number ten, you and I both know he's the GOAT, Paul Pierce. Oh, man. That was a... Uh, for reference on that, watch the season, the series finale of Game of Zones. We're not gonna spoil anything. All
1: right. So I got him there for seventy-five possessions. He, aver- he only averaged twenty-two point five points, six point four rebounds, four assists. It was moderate, modest stats, but I got him as one of the faces of the Big Three. He was a leading scorer of the 07-08 title title-winning Celtics. I think he really cemented his legacy with those those title runs. So.
0: And him having to go to the bathroom and then coming back later in the game. And that was funny. Win. All right. And my, oh, well, here you got for number 10, Liam. By number 10 is the human highlight reel, Dominique Wilkins, of mainly the Atlanta Hawks. I mean, his the duel with Dominique that Larry Bird had with him is one of the greatest games in NBA history. And not only was he an incredible scorer, he was also a very good dunker, hence the name human highlight reel. He averaged over 25 points per game for six, seven, eight, for 10 straight seasons, to say the least. I mean, there's not much more to be said about him. He was a little bit of a disappointment when he came to Boston, but by that point he was 35 years old. I mean, time All-Star, 7th time All-NBA. There's not much more to be said about him. He was a, an absolute stud for the Atlanta Hawks.
1: Yeah, that's my number 9 right there, Dominique. He... Him and Jordan battling in those dunk contests, that was great. And you're right, 26, average of 26 points per game, over 26 points per game during your 10 year prime. That's just, that speaks for itself. He could score in so many different ways. He wasn't just a dunker. If you, if you want to see proof, you can watch the duel with Larry Bird. Him and Larry going at
0: it. That was insane.
1: And of course, he was just really just a really fun guy to watch. He's one of the guys who came, you bought a ticket to go and see. So that's why I got my number 9.
0: Who's your number 9, Liam? My number 9 is, in my opinion, one of the most underrated players to ever play the game. And I think one of his nicknames speaks up to how good he was. The nickname being Big Game James. And I'm, of course, talking about James Worthy of the LA Lakers, who had a career average of 17.6 points per game, primarily playing with both Magic and Kareem, two completely different superstars in their own, right? I mean, he was a Finals MVP, was a quintessential part of three championships, seven-time All-Star, Hall of Famer for a reason. I mean, Iceman, he was a very good shooter, at at least except from the free throw line, pardon me. Big Game James, I mean, there's not much more to say about him. He was huge for the Lakers team, and that's why he's one of the most underrated... He's one of the most underrated players in league history, and I just felt it disrespectful not to include him on this list.
1: I'll speak more on James Worthy later, but I got for mod number eight, I'm going to go with Adrian Drant, uh, Dantley. I've never really heard of this guy before. I was doing research earlier, but he really was a, a sniper before there was snipers in the league. This was... He kind of played before the three-point shot was a big deal, and he still... He still averaged 30 point. well, he still scored 30 points per game with 60-plus uh, true shooting percentage, and there's only 16 such seasons in the NBA history, and he did this without shooting three-pointers, so he was one of the first true great shooters, and that's why I got him on this list at number eight.
0: Alright, Adrian Dantley is my number 11. I mean, he had a few good years playing for Utah, but he was never the you know, big piece on a championship team, if you know what I mean. I mean, neither were neither was Worthy but or Wilkins, but I just feel like the two of them had a more successful career given their situations than, what's his name, Dantley. So my number eight, I'm not sure you're going to have him on this list, is John Habelchek, who was a very important part of eight Celtics championship teams in the 60s and 70s. And once Bill Russell was gone played the starring role in on the teams in 74 and 76. I mean, he averaged 20 points per game for eight of eight seasons, finished averaging 21 points per game for his career. 13-time All-Star, 11-time All-NBA. Very good defender, chose, given he won, made eight all-defensive teams. And he was a quintessential part of eight of our 17 championship teams. Man, you hear that? 17. That sounds really nice, doesn't yeah. it? All right. I kind of I agree with you there, Liam. I like your
1: points on Dantley, but for my number seven, I got the big game James James Worthy. I think he gets overlooked because he was he was one of those guys. Kind of you can kind of relate him to a Draymond Green, almost kind of just a better version. Of course, he was more of a selfless member of that Showtime offense. <laughs> I mean, they had Magic, they had other, they had Kareem, they had all these great players and. They didn't really have room for a guy that could run the floor also, even though he could run the floor like a Draymond Green. So I think that's why he's overlooked sometimes. But he shot over 54%. He did everything the team needed. He ran the floor. He played good defense. He was just an all-around stud at small forward, and I think he deserves to be at number seven.
0: All right, My number seven is another one of the underrated players in the NBA. I think partly because he never won a championship, part of that was due to Bill Russell, but he was another one of the great African-Americans of the NBA that 1960s NBA, and that is Elgin Baylor, who really got screwed over, if you will, by Bill Russell's greatness, because, I mean, he averaged 27 points per game, and he averaged 13.5 rebounds per game as well as a small forward. That's not easy to do. And 11-time All-Star, 10-time All-NBA, but that ring just kills, or the lack of a ring just, some might say, just have a detrimental effect on his career. I don't know if that's entirely true, but, I mean, he was a complete stud, especially when he was playing with Wilt Chamberlain and Jerry West. It's a bummer he didn't win it because he had such a good career. Yeah, I got Baylor just a little bit
1: higher on my list, but for my number six, I'm going with, uh, we're on number six, right?
0: Yes, we're on number six.
1: I'm about to go with Scottie Pippen. Okay. And the reason that, I know he's, a, some people call him the second best player in the league when he, when he was in his prime. Disagree. More second Michael, Michael Jordan, of course. But I got to say, I, I wanted to see him prove himself without Michael Jordan on his team on and by his side and he really per game he only averaged 16 points 6.4 rebounds 5.2 assists he was an all around stud defensively and offensively but his stats aren't they don't pop off the paper per se and but he got to the Rockets he was not very good he was old
0: but yeah yeah exactly alright my number 6 I went this may be a little biased for having him so high but I went with Paul Pierce because on in the on the Celtics teams of the early 2000s when there was Close to nothing, he kept them competitive. He did. He wasn't great, but he still kept them... Or they weren't great, but he still kept them in most games. And then, when KG and Ray arrived, he really became a champion when he averaged 20 points per game on that championship team. I mean, he's, in, in my opinion, an underrated shooter. He was, a, he was a good defender as well. I mean, Celtics fans are never going to forget his duels with LeBron James in the Eastern Conference semifinals in 2008, one of the real things that boosted us to be able to beat Detroit and LA on entry to a championship. I mean, like you said, the GOAT, if you will, if you know what we're talking about, and Paul yeah. Pierce. He's a, also a great studio analyst for ESPN. Yeah. For my number five, I got
1: Elgin Baylor. He already... Talked about him earlier, but I find I know the lack of championships is kind of a bummer on his overall outlook. But the 27 points, 13.5 rebounds for your career—that's that's crazy. That means he he really never had a down season in his career. So
0: that's why I got him at my number five spot. What about you, Liam? All right, my number five, I have the greatest dunker that ever played the game. That is Dr. J, Julius Irving, who spent a lot of his early career in the ABA at least his at least the first 5 years of his professional basketball career where he shined even more but once he got to Philadelphia in the NBA he really made himself a household name with his crazy dunks he was able to bring home and bring home a championship in 83 seven all NBA awards 16 time all-star across the ABA and the NBA hall of Famer for reason i if anyone thinks that he's not the greatest doc, or dunker excuse to ever play the game Please, please, share with me your opinions, and I will tell you why you're wrong.
1: Yeah, I appreciate sure to my number four, which is also Dr. J. I think, I don't know for sure, but I want to say that he was before Magic and Larry, right, Leo? Uh,
0: he played with Magic and Larry.
1: Okay, so I think he was also part of that popularizing the NBA to all of America. Him, Magic, and Larry, you could say. He was, Larry Bird was more of the fundamentals, kind of watching him shoot and make, just score by shooting, but he was more of the dazzler with the dunks and stuff, and he really made the NBA fun to watch, so that's why I got him at number four, and he also had some good stats, 22 points, six rebounds a game, he could shoot, which people don't realize, his true shooting percentage was 2.6, which is almost the same as uh, Larry Bird. so... He was just an all-around stud, Dr. J, before number four.
0: All right, my number four, I have Scottie Pippen. I mean, and I'm going to contradict your point earlier you made about him not being able to succeed without Jordan. He got, he got the Bulls to the playoffs in the season and a half without Jordan. I know he didn't win, but, I mean, when you lose the greatest player that's to ever sure, play the game, sure. you're obviously going to go down a little bit. I mean, I know he didn't stuff the stat sheet like most, like, you would expect the fourth-best small forward of all time to, but... At the same time, man, his, in my opinion, the best defender to ever play the game, undisputed. Ten, he was a ten-time member of the All Defensive Team. He was he even won an All-Star Game MVP. Six-time NBA champion. I mean, as as there's as much credit you want to give to Michael Jordan, there's no Michael Jordan without Scottie Pippen. There isn't. And to all you LeBron fans out there. There's no LeBron without Kyrie. There's no LeBron without Wade. There's no LeBron without Bosh. Just to the point that there's no MJ without Pippen.
1: Alright. I think you and me are going to debate this number three, number two pretty well because at my number three I got Larry Bird.
0: Is your number two two Kevin Durant? It is Kevin Durant. Okay, okay. We have them flip-flopped. It's
1: hard to put I mean, I want to say, I, got to, I put Durant in front of Bird because, well, I think Durant's one of the best offensive players of all time. When I, when I equate the two offense, i got to put Durant in front of Bird. I mean, I think they're equally as
0: good as shooters, but I think Durant, Durant could do more ball handling and crossovers and driving to the basket. All right, but let, me, but let me say this. As good as Durant has been, he could not win until he joined the team that had won 73 games the year before and came back from a 3-1 deficit against his very good Oklahoma City Thunder. I don't know. I, I see what you're saying. And, and Larry Bird, Larry Bird, won. Bird made his teammates better, right? Yes. You're, right. you're saying does Yeah, I am. He made Kevin McHale. He made Robert Parish, Hall of Fame players. Larry And Kevin Durant, well, we see now how good SGA is doing with Chris Paul as his leader in OKC. uh, Serge Ibaka became a more productive player when he left OKC with that Durant. James Harden became a more productive player when he left OKC for Houston. Kevin Martin, oh by the way, became a much less productive player when he left, uh, when he came to OKC from Houston in that Harden trade. And... You know, Larry Bird, I mean, the king of trash-talking, one of the best shooters to ever play the game, three-time NBA champion, a bit overshadowed by Magic and Kareem, if I say so myself, but he made he made McHale great. He made Parrish great. He made Dennis Johnson great. He made Danny Ainge great. It, is, it still boggles my mind that Will Arntzen is adamant that Hakeem Olajuwon is better all-time than Larry Bird. Do not get me wrong. Hakeem Olajuwon was great at what he did, but to put him over Larry Bird, ridiculous. I'm sorry. So leave us with
1: their number one.
0: LeBron James.
1: Yep, LeBron James.
0: I mean, as much as I as much as I pick on him all the time on the show, his greatness is undisputable. I mean, he led his teams to eight straight championships, including a Cleveland Cavaliers team in 2018 that was. Very, very mediocre. I don't know how much of that you can attribute to the injuries the Boston Celtics were dealing with that year, but that's a discussion for another time. But LeBron James, man, just pure winner. If,
1: if he's not the greatest player in your mind, he's definitely the second greatest player he, of all he's, time. He's undoubtedly
0: number two. He's undoubtedly number two. I'll say that. Yeah.
1: So there's no question he's the greatest small forward of all time. No, absolutely. He's just, in his prime, he was just, I mean, he's, the longevity of his career is also incredible. It really his is. Played twenty, So he's going to almost play 20 seasons by now, and he still looks like he hasn't lost a step. But in his prime, he was able to guard all, all five positions on a nightly basis and drop 30 on you, and you got to see his passing. Averting seven assists in his career, seven rebounds, his passing is what makes him great. His feel for the game is IQ, so. Yeah,
0: and he makes his teammates better, unlike Durant.
1: He really does, so he's undoubtedly the greatest ball of all time.
0: Undoubted. no, no doubts.
1: Alright. Well, folks, that's all we have for today. I'm Jay West.
0: I'm Liam Griffin. I'd like to thank Jay for joining the show again today, and thank you for tuning in. Be sure to give this podcast a follow on Instagram at Folker Press Podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest, please DM the podcast or contact me. Be sure to tune in next week as Preston Witt joins the show to discuss the best power forwards of all time and outfield trios in today's game. Please, please, please stay healthy, wash your hands, be safe, and be positive. Enjoy your 4th of July, and we'll see you next week.